So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them to Galatians. We're reading from chapter 5, from verses 16 to 26. So I say, live by the Holy Spirit's power. Then you will not do what your desires controlled by sin want you to do. The desires controlled by sin do not want what the Spirit desires, delights in. And the Spirit's the spirit does not want does not want what the desires controlled by sin delight in. The two are at war with each other. That's why you are not supposed to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the authority of the law. The result in sin's control of our, in our lives is clear. It includes sexual sins, impure acts, and wild living. It includes worshiping statues of gods and worshiping evil powers. It also includes hatred and fighting, jealousy and fits of anger. Sinful desire is interested only in getting ahead. It stirs up trouble. It separates people into their own little groups. It wants what others have. It gets drunk and takes part in wild parties. It does many things of that kind. I warn you now as I did before, people who live like this will not receive God's kingdom. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit produces love, joy, and peace. It is being patient, kind, and good. It is being faithful and gentle and having control of oneself. There is no law against things of that kind. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed their sinful desires to his cross. They don't want these things anymore. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become proud. Let us not make each other angry. Let us not do it belongs let us not want what other what belongs to others. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Father God, this morning as we come to take some time to consider this passage, it speaks to us about walking and keeping in step with the Spirit. We want to thank you that your Spirit's presence is here among us now. Pray that your Spirit would have your way among each one of us. We thank you for your word, which is alive and active. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that illuminates your word and dwells in the hearts of each believer. Thank you for the opportunity to speak on your behalf. May my words be your words, and may your Holy Spirit draw us into a deeper and closer relationship and walk with you, Lord, for our enjoyment and pleasure in being the people you made us to be, but more importantly, for the glory of your name. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's wonderful that we've had all this rain, isn't it? When we were in Canberra uh, for that sort of week between Christmas and New Year, um, it really just was amazing how dry it was. We 
can take it for granted easily here on the coast, even though it hasn't rained for some time. It's comparatively speaking. It's still quite green. And the grass, almost everywhere it seemed, was dead. And it looked a lot like this, this kind of yellowy, dead, sort of dry condition. And for that time that we were there, it was just hot and humid. And some of you will know we even returned a bit earlier because of the smoke that was coming from the south coast. And just the whole area just felt sort of ripe for fire. It was so hot and dry and humid and, and things were just looking dead and dry. While we were there, as I mentioned last Sunday, I had the opportunity to take a tour of uh, the War Memorial and the Parliament House. And I also one morning got out on a bike ride and, and rode past both of those uh, special places. And what was incredible was the contrast because a surrounding... Australian Parliament House and the War Memorial, the grass was just incredibly lush and beautiful and green. And obviously because these places are so significant, uh, they receive special care, attention and regular watering. And seeing these two contrasting conditions of the exact same thing (laughs) was a very stark reminder or a visible reminder of the difference that God's spirit can make in a person. Same person, but when the spirit of God dwells within them, huge difference, huge changes take place. When a person places their trust in Jesus and receives the Holy Spirit, a permanent process of change and transformation begins to take place. The role of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life is not just to be an add-on or an extracurricular activity. When we place our trust in Jesus and begin following him, he doesn't say, would you like the Holy Spirit with that life? It's included for all of us. Jesus didn't send his spirit so we could live semi-moral lives and attend church regularly. The Holy Spirit is to pervade every single area and aspect of the believer's life, taking us on a lifelong journey of complete and total transformation from that sort of dead, dry-looking grass to a vibrant, green, rich, life-filled grass, life in the Spirit. With the Holy Spirit's power dwelling in us, coupled with our cooperation to keep in step with the Spirit, Christians can be people who live in a constant state of becoming more and more and more like Jesus. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he is particularly challenging a group of teachers called the Judaizers. These are Jewish Christians who continued to practice the Jewish and uphold the Jewish law and indeed taught that the law must be obeyed if one is to be saved. It's basically a a grace plus works gospel. Paul contrasts life in the flesh, which is subject to to the law, with life in the spirit, a life that is subject to the leading and the filling of the spirit. One is a walk of unattainable effort. No matter how hard you try to uphold the law, you're never going to be able to uphold it perfectly. The other, the life led by the Spirit, 
is a life of constant surrender and obedience. When Paul speaks of freedom, the Judaizers hear lawlessness. And perhaps it's helpful to think of the concept of a parent feeling the tension of allowing their child as they grow increasing freedoms. As children get their driver's licence and so forth and have different freedoms, the natural, I think, reaction of a parent is to think of all the risks that are involved and, in a sense, want to hold the child back where things are safe and secure and predictable. But, in a sense, what Paul is saying, now Jesus has come. The gospel of grace means that your salvation is secure through Christ and what he has done. It's time to grow up. It's time to mature and live a life led by the Spirit of God. Paul argues that the good news is salvation has been completely achieved through Christ's finished work on the cross, and believers are therefore to accept that grace and live a life of obedience led by the Spirit in response to what Jesus has done. Not in any sense trying to earn their way for salvation. Verse 16, Galatians 5, says, Walk by the Spirit. I love the language of walk. As you know, I'm a runner and certainly enjoy the challenge of running long distances. And there are several places, if you think about it, in Paul's writing where he actually draws on the imagery of a runner, of an athlete, but not here. He says, walk by the Spirit. He doesn't say, run by the Spirit. Walk is more considered. It's every day, every moment, comfortable pace. Not everyone can run, but most can walk. And when we speak of our Christian walk or walk with the Lord, we are speaking about a way of life, a relationship, To walk by the Spirit is indeed to walk with the Spirit. Many times we might ask one another, and a great question to ask is how... It's a very confronting question, isn't it? If someone would say, how's your walk with the Lord going? People have asked me that question before. It's a great question to ask. No one's ever said, how is your run with the Lord going? (laughs) See, I love the language of walk. It's... There's something accessible about it, isn't there? Something relational. It's an invitation to a relationship, to walk. But from the very moment a person places their trust in Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside our hearts, a battle begins. A conflict between the flesh and the Spirit. And in a sense, there are now two different paths that we can walk in. We can walk according to the flesh, or we can walk according to the Spirit. Sometimes the term flesh is described as the sinful nature. For Paul, the term flesh refers to the whole person living outside of God's will and apart from God's guidance through the influence of the Holy Spirit. Once we become believers, Christians, followers of Jesus, we are no longer to be guided by our flesh, but guided by the Spirit of God. The trouble is that both 
powers are at war. They both desire to master us. And this inner battle has to do with which power a person, meaning their body and soul, the whole person belongs to. It's a question of where our true identity lies, where our deepest motivation comes from, and where the power that rules our lives is truly found. When a person lives in God's spirit, he or she escapes the power of the flesh. But for as long as we live in this state of incompleteness, this kind of internal battle never stops. When we allow the flesh to reign, we end up doing and saying things that are contrary to the desires of the Spirit. And all of us who are Christians get this. We understand it. We do and say things that we know are not of the Spirit, and we ourselves feel remorse and shame. But we equally know what it's like when we choose to live in the Spirit's power, and in accordance with God's will and in the power of the Spirit. Sometimes it can feel a little bit like a, a seesaw ride. Life as a follower of Jesus is meant to be a Spirit-directed life, a life where the power of the Holy Spirit has complete control. However, we don't obtain this life by discipline or somehow mustering up the energy. Rather, the Christian life is a life of consistent and constant surrender to the Spirit. What a paradox. We win the battle over the flesh by surrendering to the Spirit. It's such a different way of considering winning a battle, to surrender. But that's the upside-down nature of the kingdom, isn't it? Once Paul has alerted his reader to the fact that this conflict exists, he then goes on to explain what the fruit of life in the flesh is like, uh, in contrast to what life, the fruit of life in the spirit, looks like. So let's explore this a little. In verses 19 to 21, Paul gives some lists of what life in the flesh looks like. Enlisting vices and virtues was common practice among moral teachers in the ancient world. And certainly Galatians 5 is not the only place that Paul does it. There are parallels in several of Paul's other letters. Not one set of lists that Paul offers in his writings are necessarily complete or comprehensive. Rather, they are always context-specific. So the things that he calls out in the letter is contextual to the purpose of the letter. And when Paul wrote to a church or a particular group of people, he is responding to the issues that that group of people are facing and the conflicts that the fellowship was facing. In other words, we interpret these lists incorrectly if we take them out of their context and somehow pretend that they are complete lists of either the flesh or the Spirit. We, in a sense, need to hold it all together. But Paul divides the acts of the flesh kind of into these four areas of sexual sins, religious sins, social sins, and drinking sins. And these four areas or these are, are typical of problems of excess. It's interesting when you consider each of the lists that the area of social sins is where Paul places his greatest focus. 
It has far more detail than the other three. And there was a lot of infighting and a lot of conflict going on within the church at that time between Gentile and Jewish believers. And there was a lot of tension happening in those relationships and how they were trying to figure out what it meant to actually genuinely walk as a believer. Do we still need to follow the Lord? Do we not? Do we walk in the freedom of the Spirit? How we relate to one another in the church and how we conduct ourselves in our relationships is primary. This further emphasises the words of Jesus in John 13, 35, where he says, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The flesh seeks to destroy fellowship, unity and holiness. Having given a fairly comprehensive list of vices, Paul then goes on to make a very important statement. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul wants his readers to be clear that whether a person has made some kind of profession of faith or whether a person has had a charismatic experience is irrelevant if he or she continues to live a life that is led by the flesh. In essence, a person's final standing before God, Paul contends, is directly related to whether they live their life in the Spirit. In contrast, Paul then highlights several virtues associated with life in the Spirit. Now, from a very young age, I, like many of you, memorised the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It rolls off the tongue like that, doesn't it? Now, when we come to the fruit of the Spirit in the Scripture, the temptation is to kind of roll them all together uh, from memory. And we can refer and speak of the, Holy, the fruit of the Spirit as if it's something out there. <laughs> but when we actually just stop and slow down and actually consider each of these fruits of the Spirit, one by one, it becomes quite a convicting little project. <laughs> and so that's what I want us to do. It's just slow down and consider the fruit of the Spirit one by one. So Paul then goes on to explain life in the Spirit, verses 22 to 26. And the first, of course, is love. And love, as many of us would know, is to be the hallmark of a believer. Paul very often speaks of love. He makes it clear that love summarises all the demands of God's law. It endures forever and unites all of the virtues of life. Only a few verses earlier in Galatians 5.14, we read, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. Love is kind of the key, if you will, that unlocks the door to all the others. From love then flows joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. When Paul speaks of joy here, he's speaking of a deep, abiding joy. A joy that cannot be rocked by the circumstances of life. A joy that knows the fulfilment of all that Christ has done, of all that Christ will do. And our joy is no longer 
directly tied to things that will and won't happen to us here on earth, but our joy is deeply rooted in who Christ is, what he has done, and what he will do. It's unchanging. (laughs) The person of Jesus and his finished work on Calvary and the hope that we have in him places within each one of us a deep sense of joy. We can be people of joy even in the most tragic and difficult of life circumstances because Christ has been victorious. It doesn't mean that we'll always be happy. It doesn't mean that we will necessarily always feel joyful feelings, but we can know a deep, unrelenting joy because of Jesus. And that's something that's very distinct about the believer. When we read of peace, this is referring to peace in relationships. First and foremost, we as believers, those who have put their trust in Jesus, can enjoy peace with God. We're in right relationship with God. We are no longer God's enemies. Because of what Jesus has done, we enjoy peace with God. And that sets the tone then for us to enjoy peace in our relationships with others. We are reconciled to God through Christ. The forgiveness that he extends to us, in a sense, models to us the forgiveness that we extend to others as we seek to be people who live in peaceful relationships with one another. We are to be those who are marked by forgiveness and a capacity to work at relationships. In Ephesians 4.3, Paul expands and says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Love, joy and peace, in a sense, are the result of walking with God. When we walk with God, we receive his love. We receive that joy and we receive that peace that passes all understanding. As we walk in God with right, in a right relationship with him and dependence upon him, we are then equipped through the love, joy and peace that God gives to walk meaningfully in relationship with one another. In practice... This looks like patience, forbearance, which is first and foremost, and it is indeed worth highlighting, that all of these qualities are first and foremost qualities of God. They're qualities of Jesus. You can walk through the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus is loving. Jesus is joyful. Jesus is peaceful. Jesus is kind. It makes perfect sense. God's desire is that we would each with increasing measure, reflect Jesus. So through the the peace and the love and the joy that God gives, we learn to walk peacefully and patiently with one another. And as we start to do that as God's people, that then flows out to all other relationships. We refuse to retaliate for the wrong done to ourselves. The scriptures speak of God's kindness his graciousness, his mercy towards sinners. Those who walk with God's spirit increasingly reflect the character and the nature of God. God is kind and merciful. God is good. This speaks of an inner motive, a desire to bless others, a desire to genuinely want the best for others because that's what God wants. He wants the best. And so the goodness is about in a motive, and it's about being a blessing to others. 
Faithfulness is about honour, honouring your word, being a person who is trustworthy, a person who is true to what they say they will do. Gentleness does not mean meek or weak, but in classical Greek, the word meant in a strength and gentleness together, humility, having in a sense the, the strength and the power, but then having the gentleness to be able to combine that and to be somebody who humbly walks and humbly serves. And self-control, the image is very much one of an athlete. It's an image of discipline. And athletes learn how to say yes and how to say no. The discipline themselves to say yes to those things that will actually enhance and increase their level of training to attain the goal to which they're striving to. And they'll learn to say no to those things that will actually prevent them from reaching their goal. And so self-control is very much, in a sense, the, the spirit of discipline. The image is one of an athlete. Now note that these are the fruits of the spirit, not the fruits of the believer. So when we increasingly walk in the fruit of the spirit, God gets the glory. And we, incre we increasingly reflect him. We don't necessarily just become better versions of ourselves. We become closer reflections of Jesus. <laughs> it also means that we can't, of our own accord, become people who are full of the Holy Spirit in our own strength. It's something that God does by his spirit for his glory. Also note that, these, that the fruit of the spirit is referred to in a singular fashion. Unlike the vices of the flesh, which are plural, the fruit of the Spirit is singular. And what that means is God's desire is that as we increasingly submit ourselves and surrender our lives to the Holy Spirit, He will mature us in all of these areas. As we begin a new year, is there a standout for you? Yes, God's desire is that we would grow in all of those nine areas. But I wonder for you, as we just walk through that list, is there a virtue, a fruit of the Spirit that you say to yourself, boy, I really would like to grow in this area. I can really see that I struggle with this particular aspect. Maybe something that we could do if we have the courage is to ask our spouse or somebody who's close to us to say, which of these areas do you see that I could grow in? And then again, it's not about us just trying harder, but it's about us having an awareness and then seeking God to lead and guide us by his spirit and to surrender to the work that he wishes to do. Unlike the flesh, which tears apart and causes destruction in relationships, which leads to division and disunity and hatred and jealousy, the fruits of the spirit are all about nurturing and building relationship and harmony and unity in the body which is what the spirit wants to do the spirit wants to bring unity to the people of God to the body of Christ who you are now today does not have to be who you are at the end of the year Christians can be people who grow more and more and more with an increasing sense of grace with every passing year. It's very easy for us, isn't it, to just run on autopilot. 
But that's not God's desire. God's desire is that his spirit would continue to produce within each one of us characteristics and virtues that reflect with increasing measure the person of Jesus. Whilst it's true that believers are sinners and people just like everybody else, the distinct difference is we have the Spirit of God living in us and therefore there should be something uniquely different. Who we are and how we live and interact with others ought to be inexplainable apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Francis Chan in Forgotten God writes, God wants to completely transform us. He wants to take a timid heart and set it ablaze with strength and courage, so much so that people know something supernatural has taken place. Life change, just as miraculous as fire coming down from heaven. He is also patient. This work will not be complete until his kingdom comes in full, though this does not deter him from working now. We are a people under construction. <laughs> a little bit like the roadworks going on at Carlton Road. It's frustrating, I know. But you can also look on the positive side and enjoy the scenic drive. <laughs> but you know what? As frustrating as that might be, that's actually the reality of our lives as the people of God, constantly under construction. And in one sense, there's a, uh, it allows us to be a little bit more gentle with ourselves when we trip up and fall, because we all do and we all will. But it also helps us remember that God is constantly doing a work in us and that things will improve and that things are gradually getting better and better as we submit more and more to the work of the Holy Spirit. And he has his way in each one of us. I'm not sure about you, but that gives me great hope, as it should give you hope, that as you continue to follow God's lead by his Spirit, you will increasingly become like Jesus. We are projects of transformation. Putting this into practice isn't a case of trying to muster up more energy to become more loving or patient or kind in our own strength. Let's take the time to ask God to put the fruit of the Spirit to work in our lives. And let's spend time with the one we want to be more like. Let's take the time, as we discussed last Sunday, to ask, show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. You and I don't have to have it figured all out. God has the blueprint for the construction process of Phil and Carol and Ross and Joel and Jack and Ian and Dave and Kaz and Judy and Doug. For each one of us, he knows where we're at. He knows what we need. The job for us is to humbly and willingly submit to that process and allow God by his spirit to lead us. As we grow through listening and responding, the Holy Spirit's fruit will manifest itself in our lives and our characters and nature will become increasingly more like Jesus. Let me finish with this rendering from the message version of verses 25 and 26. Since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit... 
let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. That means we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. (laughs) Each of us is an original. I'd be the first person to say that I compare myself to others, you know, and wish that I was a bit further down the track. But God says, don't worry about that. You're an original. I've got a blueprint for your construction. Submit to me. I'll show you my ways. I'll show you my paths. Trust me and I will lead you and you will become more and more like the person I made you to be. At the start of this new year, may we as God's people, both as individuals and as his people as a community, submit ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit. May we walk with the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit and become all that God desires for us through the Spirit for our enjoyment and pleasure and for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desire to please you and to live lives that are good and upright and holy and just. For we know these are your ways. Your ways, Lord, are good and upright. Your ways include enjoying right relationships with you and with one another. Lord, we desire this, but the reality that we experience is often so different. And we recognise, Lord, that there is a, a battle, a conflict going on between the flesh and the spirit. Father, forgive us for those times where we have allowed the flesh to lead and to override and to guide. But thank you that your spirit is there and your spirit is available and your spirit beckons and calls us to walk in step, to be led by, to be guided by and to submit to. I pray that at the start of this new year, we might each, Lord, make a a desire and a resolution to be those who are more submitted and committed to your ways and your leading, empowered by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Pam. Thank you, Pastor.